Hello, my scattered friends. Thank you so much for inviting me to share with our community today. I miss all of you with a special ache, not just each of you, but the all of us together, the larger whole that we all sum together to make. Preparing this talk, reflecting on what I'll say to you and imagining what you might say in return has given me back a bit of that whole, and I'm grateful. If I had to give a name to the tumultuous year that has been 2020, I might call it the year of fear. For so many of us, long-held security has been stripped away. Spaces where we've always felt safe, our workplaces, schools, neighborhood gathering spots, even the homes of our friends and family have come to feel dangerous and unwelcoming. Even more tragic, some of us are realizing that for many Christian brothers and sisters who hold different racial or ethnic identities than our own, those workplaces, schools, and neighborhoods have never felt safe or welcoming. Things we've taken for granted, that we'll have a job, that our elderly loved ones will remain healthy, that we'll be able to navigate the world in relative freedom, even that our rights as citizens and our system of government are solid and unchangeable. All of these truths suddenly seem to be up for debate. Some of us have lost loved ones during this pandemic whom we could not touch in their final days. And our friends have been unable to gather to comfort us in our mourning. Underlying all the themes of 2020 is the overarching human fear of death. Maybe for ourselves, maybe for vulnerable loved ones, maybe just for those far beyond our reach that we only see on the news. We can suddenly see so much more clearly how fragile, how constantly vulnerable our human lives really are. Our texts today come from Psalm 30 and Psalm 146. And these Psalms have so much to say to us in this fearful year. Would you open your Bible and keep it in front of you as we examine the poem of Psalm 30 together? The first element that strikes me in this psalm is the repeated use of contrasts. Sheol and the pit are exchanged for life. God's anger is exchanged for his lifelong favor. Weeping is exchanged for joy, night for sunrise. Mourning is turned into dancing and sackcloth to gladness. The agent of all these changes, the poet tells us, is God. God has all the action words in this text. He heals, he draws up, he brings up and restores to life. He looses us and clothes us. The images of God's redemptive action of his taking what was meant for evil and turning it into good are woven throughout the poem. So if God is the agent of change, between what two states of being has the psalmist moved? What has been exchanged? Is this simply a story about being in danger and then being rescued? Being scooped out of the pit? 
a story about being transformed from a loser, one whose foes rejoice over them, into a winner instead. That would be a reassuring version of the story, in a way. For those of us who've always been secure and who find ourselves, for whatever reason, in a season of mourning and weeping and fear, it feels natural to cry out for our security to be restored. But I think that's too simple a reading of this story. In fact, it is not in the psalmist's security where God is found. He tells us, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. In his prosperity, he doesn't see the need to cry out to God. He doesn't recognize that it is God's face, God's favor, that makes his mountain stand strong. Only when he is dismayed does he realize his dependence on God and cry out for help. I believe that the central transformation in this psalm, the greatest contrast of all, is the exchange of self-reliance for dependence. God uses our experiences of failure, helplessness, and need to show us how we have forgotten him, ignored him, arrogantly assumed that we could run our lives without him. When the writer does cry out, he doesn't call out for God to restore his security. He doesn't ask God to prop his mountain back up so he can go back to being immovable in his prosperity. For what does he ask God? Twice in verses 9 and 10, he cries out for mercy. What does it mean to experience God's mercy? What does it require of us? I believe that fundamentally the experience of God's mercy, his unmerited favor, requires us to recognize our own fragility, to understand that even if we are at this moment on the mountain, we are never more than a stumble away from the pit, and we are not fundamentally different from those we see down in the pit. We're called to admit that our self-sufficiency has been an illusion and that the reality is our deep need for a God who can redeem and save us. To obtain mercy, we need only to realize that we need mercy. For the past few months, as I struggle in a rather pit-like manner to maintain some quiet time for God amongst the chaos, I've been returning to a little book recommended several years ago by a sweet friend known to some of you, Keely Lime. It's a series of interviews with Pope Francis titled, The Name of God is Mercy. In it, he says, we lack the actual concrete experience of mercy. The fragility of our era is this too. We don't believe that there is a chance for redemption, for a hand to raise you up, for an embrace to save you, forgive you, pick you up, flood you, the infinite patient indulgent love to put you back on your feet we need mercy. Though I've focused mostly on Psalm 30 in this meditation, the author of Psalm 146 beautifully echoes the themes of David. Again, we are reminded of the dangers of prosperity. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, 
he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. What a good word for this week of political upheaval. When it has felt for many that our security hinges on the election of a certain leader to guide us. Instead, we're urged to place our hope in the Lord our God. Again, God is the lead actor, the agent of change. He executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up the bowed down, upholds the widow and orphan, and punishes the wicked. When we feel despairing as witnesses or victims of injustice, we're reminded that our salvation will not come from aligning ourselves with a powerful ruler. Again, we are dependent on God. We can seek to be the righteous whom God is said to love in verse 8, but only the loving, faithful creator God of verse 6 can defeat evil and restore the right order of the world. As 21st century Christians, we understand the story of God's restoration in a way that the psalmist could only vaguely foresee through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But these psalmists discern the character of the God that will lead to the story of resurrection, his eternal repeated willingness to reach down into the pit for us, to be present in our weeping and our mourning, to heal, to restore to life. This character of God is fully played out in the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Ultimately, God does not just reach down into the pit for us. He goes down into the pit himself and brings us out. So what does the resurrection do? Does it put an end to death? No, it doesn't. At least not as we experience it in our earthly bodies. As we've been reminded this year, human lives still end. Human beings still die. The power of the resurrection is that it puts an end to the sting of death, the fear of death. Our dependence on God to save us unlinks our physical safety from our eternal security because the one on whom we depend can keep us secure even beyond death. Jesus does not minimize how real the pit is. When he visits the grave of Lazarus in John chapter 11, he weeps. Not because he doesn't know the end of the story, but because human suffering and death carry with them real pain and grief, real weeping that tarries for a night, mourning before the dancing, sackcloth before the gladness. This is the pain that the psalmist vividly describes. Jesus knows it too. But then Jesus delivers to Martha the best last line in biblical drama. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Joy comes in the morning. Life does a victory dance over death. God wins. In closing, I note that in my Bible, the setting of Psalm 30 is described as a song to be sung at the dedication of the temple. After living through 2020, I can't imagine a bit more what joy David must have felt about 
being able to come finally into a temple, a place, a physical location where the presence of God can be felt and experienced in community. But remember, David never entered the temple. He planned and dreamed about the temple, but it would only be built by his son Solomon. He prepared this song then, we assume, looking ahead in faith to the time his people would return to the house of God. When he says that joy comes in the morning, that God brings restoration, he is praising God for something that hasn't yet occurred in his, David's, reality. He believes it will happen, though, because he has experienced the mercy of God in his own fragile life. I know that we'll return to our sacred space too. Though we may not be sure of the time and though the wait can feel like a long night of weeping. In the meanwhile, we know that on this side of the resurrection, we are God's dwelling place, God's temple. Not just each of us, but the all of us together, the larger whole that we all sum together to make. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul tells us, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And Peter echoes this in 1 Peter 2, 5, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built on the cornerstone of Christ. We are dependent on him, and I pray that in our collective fragility this year, we will experience that dependence in a new and life-giving way. May the mercy of God find you in the closing days of 2020. Amen.